Hey guys, Jules here. Okay, so now that we've presented our case for fiction in previous episodes, and we've explored probably one of the most influential and important Catholic writers in history, Flannery O'Connor, it's time to dig into the modern Catholic literary world. But first, I want us to think a little bit differently about the act of writing itself. In the first episode, we made the case for reading fiction, but what about writing fiction? In other words, can the art of writing be, in a way, a spiritual exercise? I'm going to let Nick Repatrizone take it from here. And you know, people used to joke with me in, Catholic, in uh, graduate school uh, when they found out that I was Catholic. It seemed to make sense because um, there's almost no f- action more Catholic than fiction writing, which is doing things kind of in silent and in secret, trying to become better and sometimes not having people notice it or recognize it. This is the story, Giving Thanks for Dappled Things. initial interviews for this series, I asked everyone this question. What happened to the state of Catholic literature in the time since Flannery's death? And perhaps more importantly, I would ask, as I've already mentioned, (laughs) where are all of the Catholic writers? Because if writing is, as Nick claims, a truly spiritual exercise, then Catholic writers should be pretty prominent fixture in the literary scene. But it didn't take me long, maybe even just one interview, to realize that this was just the wrong question to be asking. Because frankly, I quickly realized this question of where are all the Catholic writers was in many ways remarkably unfair to the writers themselves. Because it places the burden of publicity entirely on their shoulders. Instead, maybe we need to take a look at why we haven't heard about these writers, and particularly Catholic authors of fiction. They're there. You just have to know where to look. So let's start with a very basic place to look. Catholic publishing companies. Whether big or small, there are dozens of Catholic publishing companies frequently promoting fiction series by Catholic authors. Now, I want to pause here because there are a lot of opinions about this strategy of promoting Catholic works of fiction specifically directed towards Catholic audiences. Now, on the one hand, Catholic writers like Flannery and Walker Percy, they achieved immense critical acclaim, wrote for secular publishing companies, and didn't have evangelization necessarily as their primary motive. We'll get to these types of writers in a bit. But often in Catholic literary circles, we forget the importance and influence of writers who write within and for their own faith communities. We can kind of turn our noses to these writers, but I think that would be a big mistake. So let's start here, and we're going to start with this wonderful woman. Yeah, my name is Regina Doman. Regina, it turns out, wears many, many hats. <laughs> I am a Catholic a wife, a mother, writer, and editor, and I've been a publisher as well. Regina has been involved in some capacity in the Catholic literary scene for many years. She and her husband run their own small publishing company called Chesterton Press, 
though Regina actually has sold some of her various book series to Tan Books recently. But I reached out to her because of her background in running this publishing company, being a fiction author herself, and just having an overall impressive career in the Catholic arts. And so I asked her about her take on this idea of a Catholic literary revival. One of the reasons I started Chester and Press is because I really see a need for two things in the Catholic literary revival. One is the need for the acknowledgement that our culture is a visual culture. And especially when it comes to children and teens, we are a visual, very sophisticated visual storytellers. And a lot of times I feel that's neglected. In the Catholic literary revival, it tends to be very word heavy and doesn't really acknowledge the power of image. We will, by the way, be getting to another visual storyteller in a moment, but it was the second point of Regina's which really stuck with me. There isn't really an acknowledgement of the role in, you know, genre fiction or popular fiction. You know, I, myself, I'm a television writer. You know, I mean, like, that's what my background is in. Um, I always say I'm a television major. I did not study philosophy. I did not study literature. So basically, the stuff I create is kind of created within my eye to the popular. Now, I have, in my research for this podcast, come across this perception. In order for a Catholic literary revival to be as effective and influential as it once was, we must somehow disavow genre fiction or writing for a particular audience in mind and instead focus on general fiction with a broader reach. But I, like Regina, I really think this would be a big mistake. So when I founded Chesterton Press, it was the aim of trying to pull together different strands of what was going on in popular fiction in the Catholic world, because I just think popular fiction is so necessary. It's what most people read, if they read at all, and it's definitely what children read. For Regina and for many other Catholic writers, this means writing for their community and within their community. For example, Regina brought up the tendency of Catholic writers who may have scandalous or violent images in their works to get upset that their books aren't selling with Catholics. Uh, But Regina, you know, she took a different approach. If Catholics don't find sex and profanity entertaining, well, can you blame them? We're not talking about doctrine. We're talking about entertainment. We're talking about what people want to do, busy, hectic people want to do in their spare time. When you're in your spare time, you know, I mean, you have those that half hour at the end of the day, those 45 minutes, that three hours with your family on the weekend. You don't want to be sitting there jumping up and turning off the TV every five minutes or, you know, going to bed with a bad image in your head. We're talking about entertainment. So I, what I respond, and I have responded to some of those artists who are like that, and just say, look, I'm sorry, bud. But, if, you know, yeah, if you want Catholics to, if you want to have, like, a strip scene or whatever in your novel, look, go sell it to the secular people. They'll probably appreciate it. If it's good art, you'll probably even make money. But, I mean, if you want to entertain Catholics, come on, start, start with the first thing. What do Catholics find entertaining? That should be your first question. And the answer is not, apparently, your book. Now, this brings me to an interesting dilemma, one that Catholic fiction writers are kind of continuously having to assess. It's not simply a matter of asking the question, who am I writing for? The question really posed by almost all the Catholic writers I interviewed is, what kind of Catholic writer do I want to be? Do I want to be a genre or popular fiction writer who specifically writes for my own faith community? Or do I want to be an author who expands and broadens my base, writing spiritually infused work, even if it has some profanity and violence, but it could reach a broader audience? And here's the thing. I think there's room for both in an authentic Catholic literary revival. So long as the story itself, or the art, 
doesn't suffer. The story has got to be a good story. The story has got to be good enough from a storytelling perspective that a secular person who's not at all interested in the gospel would have a great time reading it and just be like, wow, that was a great book. Let's stick with this for a moment. There are many, many ways in which Catholic fiction authors can influence their own communities without sacrificing their art and their storytelling. If you've listened to some of our past episodes in this series, which, by the way, I highly recommend you do, you may remember this guy. My name is Bernardo Paricio. I'm the founder of Dappled Things, founded it in... 2005. As we mentioned in a previous episode, Bernardo started his own Catholic literary journal called Dappled Things back in 2005. I wanted him to explain a bit today about why he felt there was a need for such a journal in the Catholic world. I noticed that among Catholic journals, there was often a lot of talk about uh, the importance of literature, the importance of the arts, and how Basically, a lot of, of, of Catholic literature in particular was really not what it had been in the past and how, how much of a pity that was. And yet there was, even though people were kind of complaining about it and talking about it, there was no outlet that really focused on developing that. If, if, if the culture was lacking, well, let's, let's build up that culture, right? And to be most effective in integrating arts and culture in the Catholic scene, specifically with young people, Bernardo took a little bit of a different approach. Many journals these days have moved from, from print to being online only even. Uh, we've moved the other way around. We, we're, you know, we still publish online, but we focus a lot on, on the print journal that we really care about and, you know, because we want to produce something that's really beautiful. Like Regina mentioned previously, Bernardo also recognized the need for the visual arts to accompany the literary arts. So he made sure that Dappled Things not only contained art in every journal, but that the journal itself was presented in a professional and beautiful way. We really have focused from the very beginning on, on the fact that we want to produce something that can go toe-to-toe with any literary or arts journal out there. So we, we do publish, uh, I don't know if, uh, how many print copies of the magazine you've had a chance to see, but we do want to produce something that is very high quality. I, I remember when we published the first printed issue, uh, got some comments from like, you know, family members are like, wow, this is really professional. I was like, well, thank you. Bernardo saw a need within his own faith community and responded. If you've ever visited or read one of Dappled Thing's issues, you'll see, of course, what Bernardo is talking about. The journal itself is beautiful and, in a way, looks like any other academic literary journal. But, of course, it's not like every other academic journal. (laughs) The writing from these incredibly talented writers is both artistic and beautiful while at the same time being spiritually infused. Catholicism is deeply immersed in each of the writings, from the various short stories to the incredible poetry. Since Vatican II, I think the faith, the church has gone through an adjusting process of trying to figure out its situation within the broader culture. And in in many cases, I think a lot of authors who were Catholic, maybe lost a little bit of their salt and, and, and maybe became a little too assimilated into mainstream culture. And so to, to some extent, Catholic writers maybe lost their distinctiveness a little bit. 
there was also, I think, because of, of other issues like that, a general sense of, of Catholic culture in general becoming very diluted, uh, which is something you can see in our architecture during those years, in Catholic music during those years, uh, as far as like liturgical music, sacred art, and so on. And I think there's been in recent years a sense of, okay, going back to what are the what are the resources, the deep, deep resources that exist within Catholic thought, within Catholic spirituality, within Catholic culture, and, and bringing those to bear on our writing. Which brings me to the name, because after I spoke with Bernardo last spring, I thought about how the name of his journal perfectly exemplified our current state in Catholic writing, and even perhaps what we can do about it. I'll let Bernardo explain. So the title comes from a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins that really captures the essence of the journal. Uh, The poem starts, Glory be to God for dappled things. And then Hopkins starts developing an idea of what he means by dappled things. And, and, And dappled, of course, means something like freckled or spotted. So think of, you know, a dappled horse or... Uh, maybe the pattern of, of shadows on, on, on the floor in a forest floor or something like that. And what he basically is looking at is things that seem in a certain sense to be imperfections or irregularities like freckles on a face. You know, those irregularities can actually make things uh, much more beautiful and vibrant and interesting. Regina and Bernardo are, in a sense, within a certain niche of the Catholic literary world. They write from Catholic platforms and with Catholic audiences in mind. And of course, both Regina and Bernardo would be very, very pleased (laughs) for others outside of their faith community to read their work and appreciate it. Good art should be appreciated by everyone. But as we've mentioned, there is another niche of the Catholic writing world that we need to address. What are we to make of the Catholic authors who, though writing from a Catholic perspective, tend to write for more secular audiences? Next time on Mystery Through Manners. Many thanks, as always, to my partner for this podcast and my best friend, Ryan, to Sean Garrison for providing the music from his album, Exceeding. Please visit our website for links to Sean's music and his ministry. And as always, all of the information from this episode, including links to both Bernardo and Regida's writings, can be found at mysterymannerspodcast.com. God bless you, and we will see you next time.